in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Two brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello and welcome to the Retro Movie Roundtable. I'm your host, Russell Guest. Joining me today is my co-host. He couldn't be here last time, but he's back with a vengeance. John, how are you doing? I'm feeling pretty good to be here with a vengeance. Vengeance feels good. And, Sometimes. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I'm pretty excited today. We got a pretty good movie, and we have an excellent guest here today. I've known this guy for about three and a half years now. He's one of my favorite people I've ever been able to work with. Today, joining us is DJ Bryant. Hello there. Hey, and this is exciting. Uh, DJ's actually here in person, so he's, he's broadcasting live from Pittsburgh. So. In the flesh, as it were. That's right. Um, so... Uh, DJ uh, helped pick this one. We'll get to that in soon enough, but let's get to know him just a little bit here first. Uh, DJ, have uh, what was your first movie memory? My first movie memory would probably be Back to the Future Part Three. Back to the, well, so you followed so the third one first. I did, yes, because uh, I, I was obsessed with trains as a child, and that one stood out to me the most. Do you think that that started your love affair of trains? Oh, totally. Undoubtedly. And dresses, too, because I love Mary Steenburgen as well. Yeah, it's a nice dress in that. Um, so, uh, the favorite director of yours. Do you have a favorite director? I would probably say Stanley Kubrick. Okay. That's interesting. Very dark. Yeah, and that's uh, that's very fitting for what we're about to get into today. Um, and um, what's the hardest you've laughed in a movie? Uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation when the cat gets electrocuted. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely glad. The rant that he goes on in that movie also really cracks me up. <laughs> like he's yelling at his boss. <laughs> now, where's the Tylenol? <laughs> so have you seen any movies lately, though? I have, actually. Um, Watchmen most recently. The Thin Blue Line before that. And Rear Window before that. So... Which was the best? Uh, so it was actually my first time seeing The Thin Blue Line. Um, I really liked that a lot. And knowing kind of the backstory about that documentary uh, actually helped them solve a murder mystery case was pretty cool. Really? I did not know that about that movie. Um, so uh, let's go into uh, today's movie. John, what movie are we doing today? Today we are doing... Blue Velvet from 1986, directed by David Lynch. That's right. And uh, it did pretty well in the box office. Uh, you know, it uh, grossed $8.5 million. Um, so it came in at 77th in the year. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is not a mainstream uh, take-your-whole-family-to-it kind of movie. Uh, so it came in, uh, oddly enough, in front of a family movie, or the Care Bears movie, too. One of my favorites from when I was probably four. And uh, Manhunter at 76. Uh, IMDb gives this a 7.8. Uh, 
And what's interesting here is Rotten Tomatoes actually likes it a good bit more than IMDb. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes critics give it 94 and the public give it 88%. So whatever reason, IMDb uh, viewers are a little cooler on this than the Rotten Tomatoes public. But no matter how you slice it, it's a good movie, according to the people. Blue Velvet also received a nomination in the 1987 Oscars for Best Director. It did not win. Oliver Stone won that for Best Director. Interestingly enough, it was the only picture to be nominated for Best Director that year and not Best Picture. Before we go into it too far, though, John, have you seen this movie before? No, this would be the first time I've seen it. Uh, I've heard plenty of references to it. I've, I've always liked David Lynch in the past and uh, wanted to see it. And actually, that's uh, part of why this one was selected. Okay. What did you do? You have any expectations coming in? Being David Lynch, no, uh, except that it's just going to be, let's just say, unique and uh, probably well acted considering by its cast. Uh, but I really just tried to keep all my expectations at bay and kind of going in knowing that at least part of this is going to be a mystery. Okay. And DJ, had you seen this one before? What were your thoughts coming in? I did. I'd seen this before. Um I, I think this is a classic. Like I think it's a great movie. It's very dark. It's very intriguing. Um, and the time that I found it at, in my life, uh, I was interested in like melancholic film. So this fit very nicely into that whole kind of arc of film. So uh, I personally had never seen this before, and I had never seen a David Lynch movie before. So Ooh. I, oh, I I'm really com- yeah I'm coming in even more raw than any of you than, than John oh, wow. on this one so yeah so this is my first uh, foray into David Lynchville. Did you use protection? <laughs> <laughs> I did, and I didn't know he was the weird guy or whatever. I hadn't even watched Twin Peaks. I knew of Twin Peaks. I knew about Dune. I knew about Lost Highway. I knew about Mulholland Drive. Just never got around to seeing them. So. Uh, you know, part of the reason I did this podcast is so I get to see all these great, great movies. So, uh, you know, DJ helped uh, shortlist some great movies for us, and uh, John picked Blue Velvet this week, and I'm really, really excited to uh, get into it. So before we do, let's take a quick break, but when we come back from that break, we're going to have to spoil the movie. So a uh, little warner here, uh, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. And if you haven't seen Blue Velvet, go watch it now and come back and listen to this episode. So... Here's a word from our Commander-in-Chief. Hello, it's your very popular and beloved President, Donald J. Trump. That's right, I won the election fair and square unanimously. I carried all 672 electoral votes. It's true, believe me. My favorite podcast is the Retro Movie Roundtable. And while it's not as popular as I am, we can fix that. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. It doesn't really matter. As long as it's not CNN. Give the show a rating and review. I'm doing such a tremendous job as president, I don't need your feedback, but the Retro Movie Roundtable does. It helps promote the show. It lets them know how they can make the podcast better. I gave them five beautiful golden stars. Give them a like on Facebook if you want. Also, email them at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. I made this country great again, and with your help, we can make movies great again with the Retro Movie Roundtable. Thank you. This message was endorsed by President Donald Trump. Oh, bless Trump's heart. Yeah, did he actually run? 
I, for president? I just let, like to know where did the extra electoral votes come from? Yeah, yeah. He, it, he, they were th- quite a bit extra, actually. I, yeah, I, I'm thinking Russia, maybe. It wasn't even a presidential election, but uh, you know what? I'm glad he likes the show and uh, will take his endorsement, I guess. So it uh, didn't seem to help uh, certain people in the House yesterday. So DJ, get ready to kick us off. And this is the last warning. There are spoilers that lie ahead. And also, this is a movie with uh, some heavy content. And while we'll handle things delicately as we can, there are certainly some adult themes that are going to come up in the show. So we'll do our best to hit the middle ground. But uh if uh, you're not uh, comfortable with uh, some of the things that get talked about, please turn it off and don't get offended. Okay, so Blue Velvet is a neo-noir mystery thriller directed by David Lynch. The neo-noir genre is a modern adaptation of film noir or dark film that was popularized in the early 1940s and 50s in America. The neo-noir genre is typically understood to connote a plot that involves dark and sinister themes, but is also... Uh, utilized to express a particular style of cinematography. Blue Velvet centers around Jeffrey Beaumont, who returns to his hometown of Lumberton, North Carolina from college after his father suffers a near-fatal stroke. While walking home from the hospital, he cuts through a vacant lot and discovers a severed ear. Jeffrey takes the ear to a local police detective, John Williams, and becomes reacquainted with the detective's daughter, Sandy. Sandy tells Jeffrey details about the ear case and a suspicious woman, Dorothy Valens, who may be connected to the case. Increasingly curious, Jeffrey enters Dorothy's apartment by posing as an exterminator, and while Dorothy is distracted, Jeffrey steals her spare key to the apartment. That night, Jeffrey and Sandy attend Dorothy's nightclub act, in which she sings Blue Velvet, and they leave early so that Jeffrey can sneak into Dorothy's apartment to snoop. While snooping, Jeffrey is taken by surprise when Dorothy returns home early and is forced to hide in her closet. Dorothy eventually discovers Jeffrey and threatens to kill him while wielding a kitchen knife. Believing his curiosity is merely sexual and aroused by his voyeurism, Dorothy makes Jeffrey undress at knife point and begins to fillet him before their encounter is interrupted by a knock at the door. Dorothy hides Jeffrey in the closet, and from there Jeffrey witnesses the visitor, Frank Booth, inflict his bizarre sexual proclivities upon Dorothy. During this encounter, Jeffrey discovers that Frank has kidnapped Dorothy's husband and son and is using them as leverage over Dorothy so that she will perform sexual favors for Frank. When Frank leaves, a sad and desperate Dorothy tries to seduce Jeffrey again and demands that he hit her, but when he refuses, she tells him to leave. Jeffrey relays this experience to Sandy and asks her why are there people like Frank in the world. Through some more sleuthing and amateur detective work, Jeffrey is able to surmise that Frank is part of a criminal drug ring and he employs some fairly nefarious individuals, including the partner of Sandy's father, known as the Yellow Man. Jeffrey visits Dorothy again and the two have sex. Frank catches Dorothy and Jeffrey together and forces them both to accompany him to the apartment of Ben, his suave, effeminate partner in crime who is holding Dorothy's son. They leave and Frank takes Jeffrey to a lumberyard and then he molests Dorothy. While molesting Dorothy, Jeffrey stands up to Frank by punching him. Frank's cronies beat up Jeffrey and abandon him there after Frank tells Jeffrey that you're just like me and symbolically kisses him on the lips while wearing lipstick. The plot eventually climaxes when Jeffrey returns to Dorothy's apartment where he finds Dorothy's husband who is dead as well as the yellow man who bears a gruesome head wound leaving him barely conscious and unresponsive but still standing. When Jeffrey tries to leave, he sees Frank coming up the stairs. Jeffrey remembers that Frank has a police radio, thanks to the yellow man, and he calls for help and lies about his location in Dorothy's apartment. 
Frank enters the apartment and brags about hearing Jeffrey's location over the police radio. While Frank is searching for him in the wrong room, Jeffrey retrieves the yellow man's gun and hides in the closet. Frank fires sporadically, knocking over the dead yellow man, who has still been standing up this entire time, and when he opens the closet door, Jeffrey fatally shoots him in the head. Detective Williams, gun drawn, enters with Sandy a moment later. From there, Jeffrey and Sandy now go ahead with their relationship, and Dorothy and her son are reunited. That's right. Man, that was a good uh, synopsis. That was, yeah. He was succinct and uh, thorough. I liked that. that. was a good one. There's a lot of pivotal moments. I wanted to be sure to get everything included. Yeah, there are. And, you know, I think this is an interesting kind of mystery where it's not uh, you have you're presented with the who done it right up, right up front where you have the mystery and you're going to spend the whole thing the trying to find out. The style. Yeah, where like you're you're, ser- you're searching for this answer. It's a mystery in that you find a thing and you don't know what that is. And then you find that, but when you find that, it just leads you to another thing and to another thing and to another thing. So it's like a Hansel and Gretel situation where it's like, you know, breadcrumbs or like that Family Guy episode, like where there's like, ooh, a piece of candy. Ooh, a piece of candy. Ooh, a piece of candy. Uh, Exactly. It's one of those things you'd think that you'd find at the beginning this ear and it's all about finding whose ear it was and what that case is. But it really just delves into so many more things as the film moves along. And it's overwhelming the first time. I had to. I definitely had to do this one more than once, and I get the feeling that it's the kind of movie that you return to again and again and get more and more out of. Oh, totally. Over time, you find more little clues and little secrets hidden in there. Yeah, and um, I, uh, we'll get into the direction here in a little bit, but uh, before we do, let's go take a quick cast rundown so we know who the players are. Uh, John, do you want to take us through uh, the cast? Absolutely. So we have uh, Isabella Rossellini before she needed her everlasting serum from Death Becomes Her, playing Dorothy Valens. And uh, Kyle MacLachlan plays Jeffrey Beaumont, who is the David Lynch favorite. Dennis Hopper plays Dennis Hopper, also known as Frank Booth. (laughs) Laura Dern, before she takes on dinosaurs, which was probably easier, plays Sandy Williams. Hope Lang plays... Her mother, Mrs. Williams. Dean Stockwell plays Ben. Man, he's he got qu- And he got quantum leaped in there sometime. George Dickerson plays John, Detective John Williams, also all, the father of Sandy Williams, played by Laura Dern. Priscilla Pointer plays Mrs. Beaumont. Frances Bay plays Aunt Barbara before she donned a kiss mask in Happy Gilmore. Jack Harvey plays Tom Beaumont. Ken Stovitz plays Mike. Brad DeReef takes a break from playing a killer child's doll as Raymond. And Jack Nance plays Paul. A lot of, lot of, good, lot of good people in there. Uh, you know, is, is uh, Brad DeReef creepier as Chucky or is he creepier here, standing in the corner of a living room just holding up a snake in the air for no reason? I think Chucky. Where does he get the snake from? Like, this is the strangest brothel ever. I don't know. Well, with Brad Dreef and all the movies I've seen him in, maybe he can just manifest things out of midair. I mean, he is in Lord of the Rings. So it, he's he, creepy he, there, too. Yeah, but so he, maybe he's a wizard in, in disguise. You know, John and I are from West Virginia, so call out to, uh, you know, I guess very creepy honorary West Virginian Brad Dreef. So, um, so... Uh, but def- a wonderful actor. Yeah, he is a good actor. I, I, I'm sure he's not as creepy in real life. I hope not, anyway. 
John, I'm so glad you made the connection with Isabella Rossellini and Death Becomes Her. That is one of my favorite cult classic films ever. Oh, I love it. So uh, beforehand, DJ unloaded a, a mouthful. Of, what's her What's her full name again? Her, her full name. It's quite lengthy. Isabella Fiorella Elatratha Giovanna Rossellini. He didn't read that either. He just boom. Imagine saying that when you're pissed off to your kid, like screaming that out. That's true. Your parents always say like Russell Stephen Guest. Urgh. Although my mom always messed up and would like call me by somebody I'm not like my father or something like so like Stephen Tracy <laughs> or whatever is like so it's like who are you and don't lie to me I know where you live. Well, you kind of took the words out of my mouth, but my mom would always call us by the wrong names. What if you, she had siblings that also had those long names? Long. Did the mom remember all of them? <laughs> yeah, and her mom's famous too. It's Ingrid Bergman. So. So, uh, so a couple casting notes uh, to share. Kyle MacLachlan and uh, Brad Dourif, Jack Nance, and Dean Stockwell are all in Dune, which came out just two years prior to this, also a David Lynch project. So David Lynch is putting the band back together. So um, uh, another thought on the cast there is uh, David Lynch actually wrote the part of Dorothy, uh, which was Isabella Rossellini's role for Debbie Harry. And Debbie Harry uh, was sick uh, of offers to play the weirdo, as she put it. Uh, and uh, she had played a character uh, in Videodrome in 1983 and uh, just turned it down. Plus, uh, she had a pretty strong music career going for at the time. So kind of interesting to think what it might have been like with the uh, with uh, Debbie Harry of Blondie. And uh, some other considerations for the Dorothy role, according to the internet, which is always 100% factual and, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Always. Uh, always. Uh, Hannah Sergoya, uh, Helen Mirren, which I've seen more than one story of Helen Mirren being very close to getting the role. Uh, and that's when he met Isabella, uh, Lynch met Isabella Rosalini. So I think Mirren was very close to being selected. Karen Allen. Uh, Rebecca D. Mornay, uh, Jody Foster, Angelica Hudson, Diane Keaton, Sybil Shepard, Sissy Spacek, Deborah Winger. All of these were considered for the role of Dorothy. So, um, according to the internet. Quite a list of considerations. Yeah. I, there's some of those that I think would have been interesting. Some of them that I, I, I don't know. Some of those, like, I think uh, Jody Foster would have been too young at the time to do it. Am I wrong? And, like, uh, I can't picture Sissy Spacek doing this that at That one's difficult. Angelica Houston would be interesting. I don't know how well she would handle it. Diane Keaton, I really can't understand. Like, she's almost like, oh, shucks. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like I, I don't know. Dark role. So, um, I don't know about you, John, if any of those names are interesting to you but uh, i think i think they made a good choice oh yeah a absolutely a great choice and honestly and i'm sure we'll get to a lot of them there's a lot of interesting casting m missed opportunities or opportunities that we'll be discussing yeah are there any other ones you want to go into um well you know what one that i thought was interesting especially it being the 80s is that Mo molly ringwald was offered one of the roles and her mother uh it was the role of sandy did not want her to do it due to the graphic content and so laura dern was casted that's odd though because sandy's character is pretty wholesome in this yes exactly i was like that if, if there's a wholesome character in this film it's it's her she came out okay though she did pretty in pink that year so I think it was probably like slutty by proxy, like okay. protect the children. <laughs> yeah, don't don't pick up what you see in this movie kind of thing. Shield your eyes. Um, so uh, another interesting uh, moment is Stephen Burkhoff was David Lynch's first choice for Frank Booth. Uh, when he rejected the role, uh, he said it was a 
nothing but uh, in the part but destruction. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton also turned down the role for being too much violence. And apparently Willem Dafoe was also considered to be Frank Booth. Uh, I uh, think that that would be even more terrifying. I, I, I get crazy off of Dennis Hopper. I think Dafoe would just be frightening. And that's why I said Dennis Hopper played Dennis Hopper. It's kind of like Gary Busey. You know, he plays Gary Busey. That's actually a good comparison, actually. Yeah, very good, yeah. I, I didn't think about that. Um, so let's, uh, you know, good cast there, but let's talk about the film creation here a little bit. Uh, DJ, what do you think about Lynch as a director, both on the whole of his career as well as here in Blue Velvet? Well, so where does one begin with David Lynch? Like, there's a lot to unpackage here. He is a character in and of himself. Um, I think his... his uh, his educational upbringing is very interesting because he started off going to like painting school and interest in drawing. Um, and that doesn't work out very well for him. Him and some friends dropped out of school and we're going to go study uh, painting by an expressionist painter in Europe, which was supposed to be like a three year kind of like study abroad thing. It only lasted 15 days. It was a complete failure. He comes back to America, attends the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and then he produces his first short film, uh, Six Men Getting Sick, six times in 1967 and what gave him the idea for this was the desire to see paintings move as he framed it and i see this very similar to warhol and his trajectory going from the screen printing to the kind of underground films and whatnot that one he had said all he could say with one medium and move to the next so taking this to david lynch's films like you know they're very um atmospheric and dark and intriguing Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought the art, art school background up because uh, he is hailed as one of the a very creative and artistic director. And uh, more than once, he doesn't hit you over the head with things. He, he's, he's challenging the viewer to see things. He's very symbolic in nature. So. Very, yeah. Um, John, you had a little exposure to David Lynch that I don't have. Uh, any thoughts on him as a director on the whole of his career? Well, I mean, kind of as already pointed out, I feel like he's probably one of the more complex directors out there, um, like more complicated than a, a Rubik's Cube, really. And uh, I, I feel like I could read books and books about the inner workings of his mind. Um, and he always has these very as I said, unique is really the best word I could think to say of filmmaking style but i like in this case th there's a bit of an autobiographical feel to it you really feel like a lot of david lynch's inner mind is really coming out in this film in particular whereas dune is you know a very well-known book uh not as much way to express his own inner feelings on things uh, here he really gets to let himself go. So uh, as DJ pointed out with his earlier background, where this place is in Lynch's career, uh, this is the fourth movie he'd done. Uh, he had done Eraserhead in 1977, which was a surrealist, uh, you know, he, he definitely gathered some, he, he turned heads with this one. And The Elephant Man in 1980. And then as John mentioned, he goes into Dune in 84. Uh, big movies probably uh, actually age better than it had at the time that was viewed as a failure. So he's actually coming off of a bit of a perceived flop uh, with Dune and uh, does Blue Velvet here in 86. 
going back to your point, John, like I do sense that he is still struggling at this point, like of who he wants to be as a director. And this relates to Jeffrey's kind of struggle with who he wants to be as a man in real life. And I think that's pretty interesting. Like he, he's, you see like his certain thematic uh, structure getting kind of concretized in this film that he's going to leverage later. Um, whereas Eraserhead was a little bit more of, that was his kind of knockout role or first film. Like it was its own thing and, and unto itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good point. So um, the producer, Fred uh, Caruso, uh, you know, despite Lynch's previous film of Doom, and as I mentioned, not doing that well, um, uh, got uh, another producer, Dino De Laurentiis, uh, uh, showed an interest in Blue Velvet. And uh, the, uh, so he, was, he had faith in this project when many others didn't want to touch it. And so the budget was originally $10 million, and uh, Lynch agreed to cut the budget and his salary so that he could have more artistic control of the movie. Uh, the only um, condition that De Laurentiis put on him was he insisted that the film be no more than two hours long. DJ, how long is this movie? It is exactly two hours long. Coincidence? I think not. Um, <laughs> the budget was uh, cut down to $6 million from its original $10 million, which is good because it made, as we pointed out, $8.5 million, so it still turned profit. So I'm sure everybody's happy that he got the control that he wanted. Um, so everybody wins in this one, and um, it turned out for a win. And so, uh, yeah, you know, this movie was originally a lot longer than two hours, but he, he had to work to cut it down. And it still works at its two-hour format, so... John, any other thoughts there on uh, some of the... What about maybe the, some of the cinematography? Do you have any thoughts on um, what Lynch's camera work? Well, I, I think, you know, he... Right from the beginning, we kind of see his style. Uh, you know, you kind of don't want, know what's going on. It just seems like a nice, almost suburban kind of lifestyle. And, you know, you see a man collapse and... You see a baby walking around, but then the the zooming in on the bugs right there at the beginning, it just it gives you this really uneasy feeling straight from the get go. Um, and I, I just think he has a really good way of keeping you on edge. It doesn't even really describe it properly, but just feeling like you're in a sense of like you're somewhere you're not supposed to be. Yeah, I mean that's 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 fair to say, and both reinforced with the environment as well as with his is with the camera work. Any other thoughts on uh, what you saw with the camera work? Um, back to John's point, I wrote in this the director style a world on the precipice of entropy. So like it's it's this very fragile reality that is about to slip into disorder of some sort, and it's it's always like um, it's just out of your grasp. You're losing it while you're watching it. Um, so I, yeah, that's a pretty interesting kind of a dark, the dark underbelly of things kind of explored in this film. Um, uh, and I think that like when they zoom in on the, the Lincoln street thing, it's like, that's really what kicks it all off that he was specifically told not to hang out there. And that's where he wound up that first night. What do teenagers do when their parents tell them to do something? They do it. The exact opposite. Yeah, the exact opposite. Um, so I thought there were some interesting things that uh, I've had in doing some reading because I don't have the large body of work that's uh, uh, built up, but I'll be watching for many of these things. Apparently with Lynch's work, 
uh, he returns to several uh, uh, symbolic nature, uh, sorry, re- reoccurring symbolic um, mechanisms that he has. And so uh, a few of them I thought were worth sharing were uh, how dogs uh, signify a major turning point in the movie. And there are some of those in here. He's walking to the street with the ear to detectives, uh, to the Detective Williams' house, and uh, he encounters a man walking his dog. And I thought at the time this shot was like, wow, this guy's walking his dog. Like they're really, really playing that up. Well, he's about to have a big change because he's about to meet Sandy as well as uh, become intrigued in the world of being a detective. So, um, and uh, duality is a big one to to uh, Lynch. So this movie certainly has it. Uh, DJ, how did you see the split nature of this movie? I definitely saw it kind of coming out in the lighting, like uh, light versus dark. Um, you see them kind of reoccurring the candle motif, like blowing out candles or the hum of electricity. Um, and then kind of towards the end, like it, the screen gets really bright and it just goes to like a whitewash. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, John, how did, did you, I mean, it's, it's all over this movie. How did you see that sense of, uh, that split nature, the duality of being dark and light in the same movie? Well, I, I the, the lighting as noted was something that was something that was big for me on that, but really, especially, you know, looking at our two, you know, kind of primary characters in at least uh, Sandy and Jeffrey, it just this sense of these innocent younger folks that they're they know they shouldn't be doing it, particularly Sandy's character. You know, she's saying, I don't want to I'm not going to do it anything. I'm not going to go any further than this. And it, she doesn't take much convincing. And it just shows, especially with youth, how easy it is to maybe change a mind and how you might be getting into something you don't know what you're getting into. Yeah, I think another interesting point is that uh, Frank and Jeffrey are similar to a point. And I think that, it, uh, you know, Jeffrey's younger and is lying ahead of two roads. And Frank is the path that he could go down on one on one road. And maybe the other one could be more like Williams, where it's a putting this fascination to use. And I think it's interesting that he finds himself questioning as dj mentioned who does he want to be do i want this darkness there's this exciting woman who uh this is all very exciting there's a sense of edginess and toughness to this you know there's some degree of appeal from the outside when you think about it and but on the other hand there's something very comforting and very um i would say reassuring in the world of the light where sandy is part of and so it's uh, you're caught between the strong juxtaposition and the movie. And that's something that particularly in the second time watching through uh, that you see unfold in the main character. I think that relates back to like the condition of the father, like having the stroke in the first scene, like here's the kind of uh, the subject of this environment, the stereotypical like suburban neighborhood who is kind of stricken down. So uh, yeah, like he is questioning, do I want to be like my dad or do I want to be like someone else? Like, this is my chance. Like I'm about to be my, my own independent adult from here. My parents are going to pass away soon, leaving me alone. Who do I want to be in my that, own person? That's interesting. I hadn't considered the full significance of the father scene in the beginning. So you're saying in a way 
it pulls out the nature of like my path is laid out before me. I'm going to college. I'm doing all this stuff. And the fact that I'm pulled out of college and my father's out of the picture, home. where where am I in this world? Exactly. That's really and interesting. Could, and I could easily go take over my father's hardware store and live the exact same lifestyle that he is. Oh, okay. Okay, so that yeah, it's okay. That see, I have a feeling this is one of the ones. Man, I want to go back and watch it again now because I, I had that. That was one of my loose ends of they're really stressing the father. And then there's another scene where um, he's recounting all the horrible things that happened to Dorothy, and he sees an image of his father and the medical device in um, the halo. Yeah. What do you make of that? Because that 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 was the other piece of father. I was like, I'm not getting the father presence, and you've definitely cleared up the whole beginning there for me a lot but what about uh what about that coming back any thoughts on, on that one john you want to step in here um actually i don't have as much i i don't i didn't have as many deep thoughts about that one as more as i did the beginning of it do you think maybe perhaps that it is his father is held as a like you know he's a prisoner in this medical device and that dorothy is a prisoner in this oh, in that's this, a good in, point. In this yeah. world that she's yeah. in yeah, I could see that. Yeah, because like he's he's uh, his neck's braced and he can't move, and it's just a quick image of the father. So, um, again, I read that Lynch is uh, strong on uh, emasculating the father figure and de-emphasizing it. I mean, lots of movies do this. I mean, tons of. I mean, Disney loves to have orphan characters, for instance. <laughs> I mean, uh, so interesting things happen when you're forced to grow up fast, and it's actually really interesting. This movie does that as well. So. That's probably where the Disney similarities start to stop. <laughs> Disney's Blue Velvet with music. <laughs> get, get a couple of uh, singing, uh, like get a bullfrog and maybe a squirrel friend for him. For... Like Mickey and Minnie Mouse with Donald Duck as yeah. Dennis Hopper. Yeah. I think that could work. Yeah. Think about it, Disney. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, another interesting thing DJ brought up was electricity, and for Lynch, electricity is often associated with murder uh, in a number of his films. And sure enough, uh, there is a strong buzz of the lighting in Dorothy's apartment, which we see other scenes in Dorothy's apartment, but it's not really uh, up front and foremost until the late uh, scenes when he goes in and sees uh, Frank. And uh, sorry, when uh, he sees the damage Frank has caused, Frank has killed Don. Frank has nearly murdered the man in the yellow. Um, I almost said the man in the yellow hat. Uh-huh. Poor curious George. Oh. Um, so he he, he he nearly murders the yellow man, or effectively has. And then so this buzzing lights in there, and sure enough, uh, you know, uh, he ends up killing Frank himself, which was satisfying. So. <laughs> And uh-huh. David loves gunshots to the head for whatever reason. Does he? Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, another interesting one was color. DJ, did you notice anything about the colors in this movie? Oh, yeah. Like um, Dorothy's wardrobe for one stood out to me because it was very dark. She had this bright red lipstick on, this kind of like heavy blue eye makeup. Um, Sandy was the kind of polar opposite platinum blonde hair, beautiful kind of bright pink dress almost like an, an anachronistic dress. Like it looked like it was from the fifties. Yeah. Like it didn't seem like it was in the right time period. Um, and yeah, yeah. So blue, blue, the color of secrets, mystery. Yeah. Yeah. And for Lynch, blue is secrets. 
I thought there was a lot of red too, like at the slow club. It sets up contrasts and to the blue. So there's moments of really white light, and again, that's that duality. And it's it's uh, so there's contrast not only in color or in the tone of the characters, but also in the in the colors, which we'll probably talk about a little bit here and um, as we go into atmosphere a little bit. But um, I thought it was interesting. One last thing, we kind of alluded to this uh, as a director. Uh, how he initially had the movie at four hours long and had to cut an entire half of the movie out. I thought that was interesting uh, because obviously he had a requirement to cut it down to two hours, but it it feels really good where it does. And if you want to see some of what's missing, uh, you might be able to look online, but there's also a 2011 Blu-ray that features 50 minutes of deleted scenes. That's a lot of deleted. That's way more than normal. Um some of them include uh, scenes at Jeffrey at college before his dad's heart attack where he witnesses a potential date rape and uh, stops it. Um, another one includes a woman uh, at the bar at the uh, brothel that uh, Frank brings Dorothy and Jeffrey to, uh, lighting her nipples on fire. Um, that's an interesting party trick. Yeah. Um, uh, wow. Who wants to see me light my nipples on fire? Mm. <laughs> put it out, put it out. <laughs> Um, so, uh, another one was, uh, you had interesting scenes inside the Beaumont household, way more scenes of the mother and the aunt. Um, Francis Bay is pretty funny in this. I, I kind of would like to see some of those. Some more. I know. I agree. Um, and so, and there's, uh, conversations between Jeffrey and Dorothy. There's a lot more of them. There's a scene where they have a more tender moment on the roof. Uh, but she also tries to commit suicide after lovemaking. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he, uh, he stops her. And, uh, and they go back to being more intimate. There's a lot of intimacy between those two. They're, they're very passionate. So, um, And then an alternate ending where Dorothy even commits suicide, which is, I'm glad they didn't do that. I don't know. What, what, uh, any thoughts on that stuff, John? I mean, I thought the movie was pretty awesome where it is, but I am intrigued to see some of these extra interactions between the characters. Yeah, I, I, I think it's better they ended it the way that they did. Uh, I, I mean, it's already... A pretty heavy movie as it is i i, I would have hate hated to see her end it at the end uh, I, i'd like to see some sort of relatively happy ending for her at, at the end i i just can't imagine it going so deep as actually letting her kill herself and not be around at the end so i john, think it all wrapped up well so john uh you know, let's let's uh, talk about where this movie takes place. Uh, John's out of Greensboro, North Carolina, right? And um, so we've got this movie in your neck of the woods. Why don't you tell us about the uh, the setting here? Well, L- Lumberton is uh, you know a l- lumber town, uh, as its name would suggest. And uh, as we've kind of noted already, it just it seems like your kind of typical, you know mid 1900s kind of structured suburban community nice town but definitely this movie shows on the surface um that you know seems like there's a lot of nice people nice neighborhoods seems like the workers at the hardware store are nice everybody's close to each other but you know everyone knows where the bad part of town is as the mother points out at the beginning of the film don't go there, and that's where we wind up immediately. So DJ being from Georgia and John living in North Carolina now, obviously he hasn't been there his whole life. Uh, have either of you been to Wilmington, North Carolina? That's where this movie shot. I have not, actually. 
Okay, John, how about you? No, I haven't. I've been pretty close to it, uh, like around Oak Island, uh, but I haven't actually been to the city of Wilmington itself. Okay. I don't know how familiar some of these scenes might feel to you in your local settings, but uh, it's interesting. Uh, They didn't do a lot of set design per se. Uh, Most of these uh, buildings are actually around Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, The the high school is an actual high school. Arlene's is an actual um, coffee shop. Uh, You know, there's... there's, um, the lumber yard that they go to is outside of there. I mean, the, the town. Dorothy's apartment building. Yep. Dorothy's apartment building, the Deep River uh, Apartments, yeah. I think it was called. Um, nothing sinister about that name. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, I thought an interesting point about the setting to bring up is the time period. Um, DJ, what did you think about when this movie is set? So we kind of chatted about this earlier. I, I definitely I put 1980s-ish. And the reason I say that is, like, in the, the cars you see on the streets, you see a mixture of, like, old 1950s cars that have a patina and or rust on them at this point in time. You see newer 70s models. And then Jeffrey is wearing an earring, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but did not come into male fashion until, like, the 80s or so. Even though Mr. T did it in the 70s. Pretty the fool. <laughs> but I, so I, I said 1980s-ish is this, the time setting for it. Yeah, I, I, my initial thought was, are we in the 50s? And it, it just kept nagging at me the whole first time it, through. And I wasn't aware of how stylistic Lynch was. John, what did you make of the time period? And um, I think it is set in the 80s. But why do you think Lynch made these decisions of using the 50s? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I, I think part of it is just that it doesn't necessarily matter what time we're in, that things have always been this way. Uh, Because the cars were kind of the first thing I really noticed. I I was just like, these cars look a lot older than some of the other things I'm seeing, but also some of the stuff he's seeing in the hardware store. I'm like, that is stuff that was around a long time ago, not necessarily in what would be like the 80s. and maybe it's just to kind of give us a sense that, you, you know, there have always been underbellies of towns like this. Uh, and it, it doesn't really change over time. I mean, including today, uh, mo- most big towns of, of any sort, they have their dark spots. It's true. And uh, I was wondering, uh, one thought I had is maybe it's like if the movie It Follows. You guys have seen that one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Uh, in that movie, they deliberately make it ambiguous with the technology. On one hand, she's got a cell phone. On the other hand, there's a box, big boxy TV with bunny ears. Uh, the car's old. The car's um, old. You know, some of the clothing is like from the 80s. And so you've got these things from as far back as even late, late 60s, 70s, 80s, and then obviously new. And I think that they did that in order to say time doesn't matter. This could happen anywhere, anytime, and it doesn't matter. There's certain ways to pay homage to another era. But then I thought a little more, and again, you guys can help me out on this more. Is Lynch choosing to go to the 50s because it's a comforting thought for America? Is it when, quote-unquote, America was uh, supposedly great again? Uh, you know, when women you know, were repressed and it was not fun to be a minority or of another uh, sexual orientation. Okay, or any, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just... So anyway, is he going to the ideal, leave it to Beaver version of the 1950s to make you see how bright bright can be 
which is always a false reality anyway, as, as John pointed out. Like, there's always been a dark underbelly. But he's pointing out this thing that sometimes we think doesn't have a dark underbelly to then contrast it with the darkness. My reading of it is, I think, going back to, again, the father and his whole kind of questioning of masculinity is like, the 50s signifies when there was a more defined role of what it meant to be a man and masculine. There was one meaning. Like, again, you didn't have this, uh, you know, these diver- this diverse understanding of, well, you can be like a, uh, a partially feminine kind of man and still perform masculinity. So I think that's why he's contrasting it because it was such a, uh, a totalized understanding of what it meant to be a man in the 50s versus once you get to the 70s or the 80s after the sexual revolution, after women's liberation, all this other stuff, men are kind of struggling with, well, who am I now? What what do we do? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting... Yeah, that is... It, and that's one of the things I'm coming to like about Lynch it's like when you go into a museum and you see a piece of abstract art and you get to look at it for a long time and you can come away with five different readings of it and they're all interesting to you. And it's the art is also partially up to the viewer. And I don't know if Lynch intends it to be that way, but that's how I'm taking it. And I kind of like it. I don't know. Am I, am I, maybe I'm missing what Lynch wants me to get, but uh, I see some degree of ambiguity that you can take certain readings. There's certain stuff that he wants you to get and there's certain stuff that you can find within that. Is it, is it that way for you as well, John? Yeah. And I think that that's the wonderful thing about Lynch's style is that he really does do that. And I think maybe kind of going back to what was being said, you know, the fifties was this time really defining masculinity. Uh, I mean, you can just look at even soldiers that had come back from world war two. They weren't even allowed to really talk about any, issues psychologically that they would have had that they would be blacklisted and would never get a job again just locked up uh you're supposed to be a strong-willed man and you know one of the first scenes in this movie is we see this man who's had a stroke and all he can do to his son is basically break down and cry which at the time would be kind of unheard of but reasonable Um, reasonable yeah i thought uh I thought it was interesting, though, like as we kind of talked about the split nature of the town, it all happens across Lincoln Avenue. And like you pointed out in the show or sorry, in the movie, like that's when things start to the darkness enters. And that's that's the point at which it happens. So um, I like the duality occurring in the physical environment as well as with the um, the the characters as well. So uh, I don't know. DJ and I are both architects, so place matters to us. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> um, so another interesting part is, uh, as mentioned, I want to talk about like th- the actual atmosphere there. Dorothy's apartment. What did you feel in Dorothy's apartment, DJ? Oh, well, um, it is very dark. Like, so let's, I was going to save this for later. We'll talk about the building. So the building is called Deep River, which typically in movie and um, literature Water symbolizes um, the subconscious. So things that you may not be quite aware of, they're just lurking beneath the surface. I see Dorothy's apartment as kind of like the embodiment of hell on earth, kind of like it is this this dark building. Even the staircase to it is like this this chasm, this dark chasm. You don't feel good going up the steps. At all. Her apartment's a little more hospitable, but still it's not it's not nice. Like it seems very cramped and claustrophobic. Um, the hallway between the steps was really bad. I was, I was like, ugh. Yeah. 
like you said, once you got in the apartment, it was a little better, but like that, that hallway was just like, Ugh. and it's just like right on axes of the bathroom. You just see the toilet there, like right at the end, which is a pet peeve of mine. Bad design. Don't align your toilet with your <laughs> corridors. Should never do that. John, don't do that. Okay, I'll make sure. Um, so I thought that was an interesting one. But like on the flip side, John, what did you think of Arlene's diner? Like to con- con- like the juxtaposition between those kind of settings. It it just seems like uh, I mean you know he asks have you ever been to Arlene's and she said of course and you know you see it and you get there and it looks like a place you could go split a milkshake with the girl you're courting or something it it seems wholesome I was, I was a little disappointed know. Al from Happy Days wasn't wasn't there <laughs> exactly see, seems very <laughs> wholesome like where good innocent things happen and teenagers could have just good clean fun. Uh, very, very happy place. No hanky panky. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, it was interesting. I also, if you contrast like Jeffrey's parents' house, it seemed super dated in a very earthy tones kind of way. So like, I didn't get fifties brightness there, which, um, why do you think that is? Any, either of you? I actually don't know what stood out to me about most about Jeffrey's home was the water heater in the kitchen. And not in a closet, but that's a random thing that I just noticed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's one that I haven't fully part pieced together. That's one piece of this I hadn't totally put together yet. And then another dark uh, piece to contrast that with is the um, the slow club, which um, is it's interesting when we go in there with Sandy the first time. You're like, okay, sure, this doesn't seem that bad. I mean, people are here. It's 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 lively. But again, you look at the parking lot later as uh, he's waiting outside, and suddenly this doesn't feel so comforting anymore. That that harsh red glow of the neon sign, and um, you realize this isn't a super nice part of town. This is so. I think that's interesting. Depending on who the character is at the time, Sandy is definitely a character of light, and even in a dark place. She, she made she, light to I, th- it. I thought that so um. yeah well and even there the, the only at, at the club the, the only really you can't even call it a bright spot you know it, it is dorothy but it's really more in a kind of a darker seductive way it's just uh it, it, you can see why it's attractive but not in that brightness you're talking about with sandy mm-hmm yeah, and you guys talked a lot already about the clo- the different, the clothing differences between Dorothy and Sandy, and so I think that that's really a good choice, uh, or a really, really good observation. Some other things that I thought were interesting about the uh, wardrobe, though, is that uh, Elizabeth Rose, or I mean, uh, Isabella Rosalini's uh, wardrobe and makeup is really over the top. Heavy makeup. And um, I, I, I saw that Lynch wanted to do this, but why would he want to do this? John, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think part of it is probably to really upplay her mental instability and probably insecurity. Um, although, really, I mean, she, she's a beautiful woman. She shouldn't have much to be insecure about, but clearly some very awful things have happened to her. Including a giant big wig, shoulder pads, and That's like too much mention. eyeliner. Like, I mean. That wig was bizarre to me. Like, A of all, I don't think it was a pretty choice no. for the character. And B, to... To take it off and to acknowledge that it's a wig during the film, like it just kind of like hits you, like oh my god! You're right. There's a very deliberate moment where she takes the wig off and then she puts it on like really quick, really again. quick. Yeah. But they want you to know that it's a wig. I don't know. There's there's a little more to unpack there that I haven't gotten to the bottom of. 
Um, but I, but I think a lot of it it just boils down to basic just insecurity and maybe that's how Lynch is talking about how maybe certain females were made to be uh, how they're supposed to feel at that time. She has no reason to be insecure. She, naturally, she's a very beautiful woman. She doesn't need all these extra things. Yet, uh, external people and factors, advertising, whatever, have told her this is what she's supposed to be. Yeah, so like like uh, Jeffrey is struggling with the role of masculinity and what kind of man does he want to be. Dorothy is performing what kind of woman she thinks she should be. Exactly. The heavy makeup, the wigs, the blah blah blah. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. I, you know, I, and I had chalked it up. At my first thoughts, and I don't think that this is all there is to it, because like I said, it's an intentional. My first thought was like, man, eighties fashion sucked. Because <laughs> like, mm-hmm. look at that hair. And that, <laughs> that isn't true. I love eighties fashion, actually. Uh, really, I do, I do. Okay. And music, which I know you don't like, Russell. It's also true. It's been mentioned before, but I won't belabor the point for those who do <laughs> like it. Um, but, uh, another interesting piece of wardrobe choice is, uh, Jeffrey. Jeffrey's from a bright part of town, but did you notice that he himself has like this new wave look? He's got like all dark clothes. Like his shirt is all black with maybe little white dots on it, but he is dressing, uh, as a character of the darkness. And like you were saying, like, I'm from the light, but maybe I'm thinking about the dark side. I don't think that's coincidental. I, I agree. And I think if, if I remember correctly, when Jeffrey is in full black is actually when he's in the car with Frank and Frank tells him you're like me. And that's when we first see him all in black. And it's like, Oh shit. Like, yeah, he is, he could be. Uh, yeah. And my first thought when he said that, I was just like, no, uh, <laughs> cause it's like, it's the protagonist. You don't want to like, it was like, I don't like you, Frank. Don't say that. And then later on you're like, Oh, but it, you're right. It's that, it's that two roads. And, I think the character even does walk down that road a certain bit of, I mean, he, Dorothy takes him into that world. And I think the moment he realizes what I'm becoming is when he cries and he hit, he hits Dorothy when they're intimate together. And, and this is the point where he says, I don't like this road that I'm on. Cause he wakes up later after nightmares, which I mean, hitting a lady should give you nightmares. You shouldn't do that. And um, he's very upset with himself. And he said, I don't want to go down this road anymore. And if that wasn't enough, a joyride, quote unquote, with Frank and a trip to Ben's place uh, certainly drove the point home that this 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 world's awful. I want no part of this. I want out of this. And I thought a big moment for him uh, was, you know, when he fought back, which doesn't really go well for him. It doesn't. No. But I mean, I think that's his choice. I think that's the choice of the movie uh, when he chooses to get out of that. So. But back to the wardrobe, did you notice well, when Jeffrey goes to the party with Sandy at the end, um, he has a white tie? The pattern on the shirt stood out to me the most. It's, this, it's a black and white shirt again. Yes, but I'm saying he, he has a white tie. A white tie, though. So like, yeah. he, he now has uh, he, there, there's a piece of balance back to it with that. So I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I, I, maybe it was just an accident. But I doubt it was. So. I just liked how I, you know, I read something that Lynch said that he said, Kyle is dressed like me. Uh, Apparently, uh, Lynch's father worked for the Department of Agriculture in Washington, and uh, he he was in the woods with them all the time. And by the time he had left, he was kind of tired of the woods. But he said in his mind, lumber and lumberjacks and all that kind of thing, that's still America to me. Picket fences and roses in, in the opening shot. 
it's a burned in image in Lynch's brain. And he said it makes him feel so happy. It mm. does for many people. Yeah. In so a weird he, way, I look at a picket fence and go like, you're going to have to paint that in three years. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, I thought I, I, one thing, this isn't an effects heavy movie, but we have uh, we have uh, one major effect, uh, certainly with the ear. Uh, how does this ear look? DJ? I thought it looks real. Um, what stood out to me the most about it and what has kind of burned into my memory is the green fungus growing on this kind of like pasty, uh, opaque ear. And bugs. And bugs. Yeah. I don't know. I felt like uh, I, I, I demand to see like the blue veins and stuff like that, <laughs> like the different layers of skin and like uh, have the uneven blueness of it. So I, I, I came away going like, I'm glad they didn't focus on it too much because it's early in the movie when he finds the ear. I'm like, I'm like, oh gosh. And the other funny thing that I thought was like, yeah, yeah, you should pick that up with your hand. Yeah. <laughs> and put it in a paper bag that you just found randomly on the ground as well. I mean, an ear's got a perfect place to put a stick into the middle of it and put it into a bag. I mean, I just, uh, I don't know. Germaphobe here. I just, uh, I, I, saw, I saw that. I was like, don't pick it up. Don't pick it up. Oh, I picked it up. <laughs> and the whole time he's like shaking Williams' hands like, did you wash your hands? Oh, you know he didn't. I bet he didn't. <laughs> Dirty, dead ear hands on his hands. Mm. Anyway, um, uh, John, what do we think about the soundtrack? There's, uh, there's certainly uh, some three really big moments here. Uh, what are your, uh, what are your thoughts on the soundtrack? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that clearly there's a c- couple songs that really stick out. Um, Bobby Benton's and- "Blue Velvet" is obviously a big one. But, you know, one that really stuck out to me, though, was in Dreams, uh, but by Roy Orbison. Okay, yeah. Uh, w- w- with the brothel scene. And, uh, you know, w- which actually Orbison fought against using it. Uh, and then after he somehow Lynch found a way to, to bypass the, the copywriting or whatever and to use it anyway. And But after Orbison saw the film, uh, he had Lynch make uh, a... a, a, a music video from the film with it and uh like it it works so well and i find it funny that the artist really didn't want it to be in it but then after seeing the finished product really saw how well it fit there's a reoccurring theme of before the movie gets made people reading the disturbing sexual assault uh, that happens to dorothy that frank rapes Dorothy and and there's a lot of horrible things that happen in this movie and I think when people read the script go oh I I don't want any part of this yeah. and somehow when they actually do it and you see that the character chooses love he chooses light over the path of darkness somehow to me that made it all redeemable even though that scene is really, it's tough to watch it, it's very hard to watch um uh so but, anyway. but unfortunately, it's it's reality. You know, it, it's he's showing us parts of reality. Some of the things we choose to not see sometimes, but he's kind of making us see it. Absolutely. Uh, what do you think about Bobby Benton's uh, song, DJ of Blue Velvet? It's it's happy and warm in the beginning. It's cold and sad when when she sings it. Yeah. I mean, I so I love both of the songs, actually, Blue, uh, Blue Velvet and In Dreams. Uh, the rest of the music, however, did not stand out to me as much. It all seemed to be just kind of like background uh, songs that were involved, like not really like uh, iconic as these two. Um, I do like Blue Velvet. Lana Del Rey has done a version of it, mm-hmm. which I like as well. I like her as an artist. So, yeah, that's it. 
Uh, the other one is Mysteries of Love, which takes place at the dance at the or the friend's party in the basement where they they have their come together moment. Again, it's uh, he's chosen her and she's chosen him. Uh, and uh, it's kind of the resolution for the for Jeffrey. Uh, super 80s. So uh, a lot of synthesizer. And it's interesting <laughs> that the, uh, you know, 50s breaks tone here again. So. Lynch, Lynch obviously walks that line between being in the 50s and being in the 80s throughout the movie. So, um, Any moments of look for this? Uh, DJ, do you want to go first on this one? Sure, yeah. So we talked about the apartment building earlier. Um, we're told early on in the film that the apartment is on Lincoln and that Dorothy lives on the seventh floor. And yet when we first see the apartment building, we only see the first four stories of it. And in reality, the building is only six stories tall. So Dorothy lives on an imaginary seventh floor that doesn't exist. Oh, good catch. John, look for this. Actually, this is just fun for me because I like the show so much, but this film was actually the inspiration for Twin Peaks. Oh, that makes sense. McLaughlin comes back to be the protagonist in that as well. So, um, Mine is uh, the F-bomb is used 56 times in the movie, all of but once go to Dennis Hopper's character of Frank Booth, and the other one goes to Dean Stockwell. So suave. <laughs> My goodness, you're suave. Anyway, DJ. Supposedly, Dorothy Valen's character was inspired by Judy Garland, and coincidentally, um, obviously, Garland played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, so you should look for some red slippers. She does. Well, she has red heels on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, John, look for this. Well, kind of at uh, echo on you, Russell, but apparently Dennis Hopper said in an interview that Lynch would never actually say the F word during filming. He would simply point to the line in the script and say, quote unquote, that word. Hopper laughed, saying he can write it, but he won't say it. He's a peculiar man. That is interesting. <laughs> um, uh, the uh, character of Frank was uh, supposed to breathe helium. In, in the movie, which I have to wonder what that would be like. Uh, it, it does seem like it would break some of the tension. You just uh, stole mine. I was going to mention that yeah. too. But... <laughs> and so Dennis Hopper, who had uh, had some drug use of himself uh, and, and they are suggested to, to uh, Lynch that there'd be aminal, uh, aminal or aminal or amyl nitrate, uh, which... He had used to enhance sexual experiences in the past. And so uh, Dennis Hopper's own walk on the wild side. Uh, sorry if I pronounced the gas wrong. Um, Just call it poppers. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's how that happened in the movie. I, I think that's an improvement. DJ, you got another one? Let's see. Um, Isabella Rossellini claims that during the initial filming of the ritualistic rape scene, David Lynch couldn't stop laughing off screen Jeez. at all the weirdness of it all. Though she was baffled as to why he was laughing at the time, Rossellini says that to this day, when she sees this scene, she laughs uncontrollably herself now. Yeah, okay. Which I don't see how that's possible. No, it's not funny. Um, I'm out of, uh, John, are you, do you have any left? I, I, actually, he, he, that was my last one. I'm glad you brought it up because I can't even imagine. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about how this movie affects you. DJ, like when you watch this movie, does it remind you of anything in your own? Like, uh, how do you, how do you, how did you take this? How does it make you feel? Um, well, like I said earlier, like I, I found this film like during a time when I was kind of, it was just after 2008. So like stock market crash, 
bad time for architects, still in school here myself, trying to figure out the world, what I want to be. And I, I, I identified a lot with Jeffrey's character in this film because he's struggling with who he wants to be. Um, and it just kind of hit at like a really interesting time. Like I was questioning a lot about reality, capitalism, work, jobs, all this stuff. And that's what David Lynch is so good at in his films is it's, it is the dark underbelly and exploration of the, the darker undercurrents of our society. Did you feel like you had duality in yourself looking back on it? Uh, not like a duality per se, but I definitely like would have role played. Like I tried putting on like the stereotypical like role of the architect, like cross-dressing as an architect basically uh-huh. to see if, is this me? Like, does this fit? Okay. Yeah. John, how do you, how do you take this movie? What does it remind you of? Well, actually, uh, I have a lot of the same things to say. Uh, I, I kind of identified with that kind of not knowing where I'm going in my life, especially around that age there in your, your early 20s. You've got all these paths before you and it's trying to figure out which ones to take. And uh, it, it's it's a difficult decision. And you do feel the conflict within yourself about certain things, these dualities, if you will. But, you know, one thing I also kind of took, and it, it's during the second conversation with the detective, uh, uh, I, I believe, where he's giving all the details. And he, he kind of mentions that it, it sounds fun being a, a detective, but the detective says it, 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 it's not always fun. And it kind of gives me this idea sometimes, like, sometimes curiosity isn't a very good thing. Like, it, it, it can lead to some good things sometimes, but... Sometimes when you dig too deep, you might not like what you find. Absolutely not. Uh, I'm going to go a little more of a funny tangent here. Uh, so Jeffrey in the closet watching these horrible things and the feeling of like, oh, crap. Like when Frank busts in and like, this is very scary. I could get caught. And um, even the moment when Frank takes him and like catches him, uh, that butterflies feeling you get like of, I've been caught doing something I shouldn't be doing. And it reminds me, the strongest moment of that that I have had was in 2006, I was in Germany studying abroad, and I was at the Olympics uh, Stadium in Munich and uh, by world-renowned, Fry, uh, world-renowned architect Fry Otto, and uh, it was getting late in the day. We wanted to get there, and um, so it's kind of closing up. We go in anyway. Uh, you know, the World Cup's there, so there's some people kind of watching it on a screen or something like that, but it's definitely passed, and uh, things are dying down. We, we slip in. And um, I go into the natatorium structure with my wife, Mary, but she waits, you know, pretty much at the turnstiles. We take pictures from there. I'm not satisfied with the amount of uh, what I can reach in this natatorium. So I hop the turnstiles. There's nobody in there. And I just start going in and taking pictures. Uh, So there's a guard who comes up and starts motioning me back to him. I kind of ignore him uh, because my my policy is always take as many pictures as you can until they tell you to stop. Um, However... Once he got a hold of me, he was a big, scary German dude. And, uh, you know, speaking in German is always more, very uncomfortable. He's like, he's like, give me your passport. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to go <laughs> home. And and so I had to sit there and, like, plead my way out of this, like, by, like, being like, I was like, oh, oh, I don't, I didn't read the sign and that it meant that. I can't read, in, I can't read German. And I didn't understand that. And he was like, you didn't know that that meant that? I was like, no, it's just not clear. See, in my country, we don't have that, which is a lie. We totally have turnstiles and you would, same thing would happen. But, um, he, uh, he gave me uh, forgiveness, uh, which I'm very grateful for. 
And uh, we promptly left, and Mary uh, cajoled me for, for, for going too far for architectural pictures. So, um, uh, but again, Jeffrey's desire to see more, the guts that he took to go into somebody else's house, uh, I would never actually do that. Unless it's a really awesome, really cool house, and I need to get in to see it. So um, that would be okay then. So that's my story. Um, time for some superlatives. John, are you ready? I am. Who's your MVP? Uh, I've got to go with David Lynch on this. I mean, really, the creation of the whole, I can't even just say story, but the whole film and what it's really diving in and into and talking about. And, you know, he has so much directorial control over this. Did so well on casting it. Uh, really takes command on set. Um, I think clearly without him, this movie, it just doesn't work and never happens. DJ, MVP. I like Isabella Rossellini. Okay. I love her in this. It's so good. Awesome. Um, any, any particular, just everything, everything. Like I think, uh, as an actress, I think at least how I understand this film in the context of its time, I think she was ballsy to take on this role. Yeah. And nobody I wanted to touch her it for that. Molly Ringwald's mom didn't want her to take it. Yeah. Ingrid Bergman was okay with her taking it. So, <laughs> um, so. mom, you never let me get raped. <laughs> um, so MVP, uh, I got to go to David Lynch as well. So I'm with, I'm going to echo John the symbol, uh, the symbolism in it. I uh, just, I now crave to watch more David Lynch movies. This being my first one. So like, I now want to go see them all. So I don't know if they're all this good. Um, uh, best supporting actor, DJ. Laura Dern. Laura Dern. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John, best supporting actor. Uh, I got, I got to go Dennis Hopper playing Dennis Hopper. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna go Dennis Hopper too. Something is just very threatening about him. I'm not gonna lie. I actually woke up. Uh, I had a nightmare, and uh, not, not it's more of a dream. Like I would. I'd been studying this movie. I went to bed immediately after like spending like a long time d- doing this, and I, I actually had envisioned myself being in Jeffrey's shoes on this joyride, which is not a place that I would want to be because I normally have a tendency to avoid. Uh, getting into trouble and like is like oh this looks like it's gonna go bad I'm out later and so uh, I I just that 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 looks like super uncomfortable for me he'd be like do you want to go to Ben's like no no I'm good thanks no I do not <laughs> <laughs> so um uh, hidden gem uh, DJ I like Frances Bay and I actually want to see more of her in this movie apparently the she, deleted scenes can help you out on that she's a cute little old lady she is great. <laughs> Uh, her facial expressions of just yes. oh oh stay away from Lincoln. <laughs> uh john hidden jim uh this might be a little bit of home cooking but, but brad Dereef. i i just love him he's got a creepy way about him always can convey that very well well you guys uh, i was very split on this and i, I ended up picking francis bay because she's a, a larger part of this movie and I'm also going to give a nod to Brad. And I've got to get it straight. Am I saying his name wrong? Dorif? Or Dorif? I, I, I've always said Dorif, but I, I, I am not positive on that. I've always said Dorif. So we're going to stick. Dorif. Once again, guys, right into the show. Is John right with Dorif or am I right with Dorif? And uh, help us out. Uh, you know, we're going to keep going with what we've been doing for now. So uh, it is what it is. Uh, uh, recast. Uh, DJ, if you had to recast somebody... 
who would you recast and do you have any ideas who would replace them with this may be a stretch but i would probably recast uh jeffrey beaumont with matt Dillon. wow Um, okay only because i think he's sexy and i'd love to see him shirtless again Mm -hmm. shameless plug (laughs) but also like he's really good at the kind of dark crazy characters and that's what i wish jeffrey's character would have shown a little bit more is like this duality of the darkness like struggling with it a little bit more tom mclaughlin's too nice for you yeah he's a little too nice okay and i i can't see him and not think of sex in the city okay okay i haven't seen that either so this is this is um i don't know what i think i don't know what i think of when i think of kyle mclaughlin but it's it'll be this now John, who is your recast? Well, I, I do really like Dean Stockwell, but honestly, I would consider recasting Ben. And I, I had to throw two out here. I, I'd like to see either Tim Curry or David Bowie try that role. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I, I actually like both of those a lot. Yeah. So uh, maybe he could borrow Dorothy's wig because it's pretty similar to the Rocky Horror Picture Show wig. <laughs> um <laughs> So uh, for my recast, I'm going to go a lot farther down the cast. Maybe I was just a lot more satisfied. But I'll tell you, somebody who did pull me out of it a little bit was Detective John Williams, who was played by George uh, Dickerson. Um, I thought that he was ambiguous, a little bit hard to read sometimes. I was like, wait, is he a bad guy? He was a little weird, like almost sinister. Yeah, and like I think there should be some warmth there that he doesn't convey. And also some firmness of like, you better not be pulling my daughter into this. And so the guy who I thought could do all of these things and probably has a similar physical look in some ways is um, Kurtwood Larson Smith, uh, who plays Red from that 70s show. And uh, would be this would be one year before RoboCop. So if you want to have an idea for what he looked like about this time, uh, the villain of RoboCop. And um, so kind of bald, kind of looks like a dad. And uh, I, I think that he is both uh, kind, warm when he needs to be, firm when he needs to be, and mad when he needs to be, and grumpy. So I, I think uh, I'm not saying literally import red into this, but I I see a I see a much better actor there. So that's my recast. Um, best shot, or this is the best cinematic moment. What what do you think that is, DJ? I'm gonna go with the in the first scene the zoom into the bugs in the ground. I really appreciate that. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a good one. I I remember thinking like, is this honey who shrunk the kids all of a sudden? So no. Uh, the music said it wasn't. <laughs> um, John, best shot. Actually, I'm the exact same uh, on that one. I, I just think it shows so well of uh, going from this nice suburban scene to showing that deep underneath everything, there's lots of other things going on. Very good. Very good shot. I thought about zooming out of Jeffrey's ear, but and I thought I was going to go there, but then uh, upon a second watch, you know what really caught me? And I actually paused the movie here. Uh, Jeffrey looking through the closet as he watches Frank enter his Dorothy apartment and take advantage of her. Well, I mean, rape her, really. Um, and uh, the lighting, I noticed from the louvers, is brighter across the eyes. And it's signifying that he sees what's through this particular louver, whereas the other ones are more faded up. And it's really good lighting. And I liked, um, I liked how you feel like you're in the closet with him watching this horrible thing that shouldn't be happening. And you're powerless to stop it just as he was. Because uh, unfortunately, uh, once you're in that position, you're not going to be like, you know, run out there and be like, can I get a Coke? Yeah, I'm leaving. <laughs> You just keep doing what you do. <laughs> um, so 
That that was my best shot. Uh, and I just uh, from having looked at Hitchcock, uh, I actually wanted to make one small change. Get closer to his face. Uh, you know, zoom in a little more on uh, his actual face because the lighting's so good and the situation's so good. I want to I want to impress upon like his eyebrows raising and his eyes going wide of like, oh no. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, best scene, which is different, DJ. It's going to be the rape scene. Um, it's the hardest one to watch in the film, but just in terms of cinematography, what's all going on there, it's like a Rorschach image. There's so much to read into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's it's wonderful and it's fascinating. It's the kind of scene you never forget after it's, you see it. And it's, it's yeah. It's uh, deeply disturbing. I mean, and uh, like I said, it's a big part of Jeffrey is, is kind of a voyeur and uh, you feel that with them. You so. are as the audience, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, John, best scene. I, I, I hate to feel like I'm stealing from you, DJ, but I, it's the same scene for me, too. I, I, I think it's really what shows us what's going on and really starts Jeffrey's journey into what it is he is going to become. And just uh, it's well acted by everyone all around. And it is a very difficult scene to watch, but probably the most uh at least influential scene in the movie small wardrobe piece that i missed uh is there's a lot there's a fair bit of nudity in this uh but none of it is titillating like there are sexy moments where like she's kind of like older woman kind of in control of this younger guy but the actual nudity takes place in like kyle mclaughlin's got to dash into the closet and like he's he's afraid or like she's being assaulted and like beaten and that's not sexy uh, at least not from my standpoint. And um, so it's just an interesting uh, point to like the scene that you guys are talking about that uh, that is that vulnerability that she has and that powerlessness that she has. It, it, it you know, there's a way I, I watched it mostly through Kyle McLaughlin's eyes in the closet. But unfortunately, there's another way to watch it where it's, you know, through her eyes. And whew, I, that's where I really don't want to put my eyes into yeah. in this one. So um and supposedly Isabella, uh, she was nude under the blue robe, the blue velvet robe. Yes. And she didn't tell Dennis Hopper this. And so when she spreads her legs and shows off her, her you know, bits, her yeah. bits and pieces, yeah. Uh, he was supposedly very surprised and taken aback at first. Yeah. It's got to take a lot to surprise Dennis Hopper, I'd say. Yeah, I was going to say, I would think there would be a spit take. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Yeah, I know it's not that kind of movie, I guess. Um, sorry. Um, so uh, my best scene, I'm going to go a little bit differently, and I kind of alluded to this earlier. I like the one where Jeffrey uh, sees what's happening to Dorothy in the car uh, with F- Frank uh, fondling her and making her, uh, you know, you know, he's hurting her and you know, showing off and doing this all in front of Jeffrey and the other goons in the car. And Jeffrey has had enough. And this, to me, is the turning point of the movie where Jeffrey says, I don't want this. And he says, you know, leave her alone. And then he looks back as if to say, are you sure you want to do that? And then he punches him, which is horribly ill-advised. But I love that he did it. It was it was a little moment for him to say, like, no, Biff, you get your damn hands off her. <laughs> it just doesn't go as well for him as it does for George McFly. <laughs> DJ, change one thing if you're David Lynch. I kind of want some more time added. Um, and I want to know a little more of the backstory about how Dorothy's husband and son were captured. Yes. Yes. That's mine. Exactly. Actually. Yeah. I thought the, uh, kidnapping 
was, uh, and actually, if you read the script, uh, the original script had it that Dorothy's husband was a drug was in drug trafficking, and he attempts to go clean and get out of the business and becomes a police informant. Frank is a criminal enforcer who is obsessed with Dorothy uh, after he gets involved with him, and uh, you know kidnaps Don not only to shut him up but also as collateral, uh, and then he gets to enjoy Dorothy in the sick way that he is doing, and um, Dorothy becomes suicidal, as I mentioned. It's much bigger part of the parts that get cut. So, um, you know, Frank started, um, uh, you know, taking over Don before all of this. Mary had an interesting theory before I found that out, though, that I thought was even potentially more interesting, is Dorothy might have been having an affair with Frank because she seems to like some of these aggressive behaviors. And I thought that was an interesting moment of maybe she had strayed from her husband. And this, this guy was a, at first an exciting adventure, but he's too, like she's gone too far into the darkness herself. And I honestly like that idea. Yeah. So, uh, John, we got derailed there, but, uh, well, I was kind of thinking what you all were, but honestly, this might go back to your recasting Russell. Uh, the thing that I, I just, the scene I found kind of weird is when he presents the ear the detective seems so, as a matter of fact, like, yep, that's an ear. <laughs> like, and it's just like, can you make him seem a little more uh, urgent about it? Like, he's like, I get a good hmm, one of yeah, these at least every day. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's an ear. Sure, and a paper bag that you picked up <laughs> off the ground. Like, it just doesn't seem like how a cop would react to that. No, no, it does not. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, best quote of the movie. Uh, DJ, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I'm not going to say my original one because I can't say the full thing. So I have a second one. But Sandy says to Jeffrey, I can't figure out if you're a detective or a pervert, Jeffrey. Well, that's for me to know and you to find out. That is mine as well. Good, good choice. It, 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 it's a clean sweep then. So that that's mine as well. I'll repeat the <laughs> other one, but I won't use the word. It's flip you, you flipping flip. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of F-bomb quotes in this movie. I did like I did like the one, too, where uh, someone's like, what do you want me to do with the beers? Do you want me to pour them? No! I want you to screw it! <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very funny response. Well, apparently in Premiere Magazine in uh, 2007, they rated the line, don't you effing look at me, as the number 74 greatest movie line I of all saw time. that, which is interesting. I, yeah. I don't know... The whole don't look at you kind of thing. I, I, I don't get like cause she did that to him. She did. And uh, he did that to her. Is it just like looking at you is control? Is that a control so thing? So I don't know if we all would agree upon this, but my reading of that is that Frank is impotent as a man. Like he can't get it up and he doesn't want Dorothy to observe him during sex because he's embarrassed by it. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Another another emasculating moment. I have no yeah. Like I said, I'm going to have to watch it several times over to figure it out for sure, but uh I, I only managed to watch it once and I'm like, gosh, I got to go watch it. Like, you really oh, do. Like oh, it's just, it, the like, second watch made it like I was, you know, I'm I'll go into this in a second. So, uh before we go into the rating, DJ, is there anything you'd like to plug? Um yeah, sure. I'm going to mention here a really good documentary called uh, The Pervert's Guide to Cinematography by Slavoj Žižek. It has a partner documentary called The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. But in it, the, this philosopher, Slovenian philosopher Žižek, goes into a lot of these films more in depth. Blue Velvet's one, but there's countless others. I highly recommend it. 
I watched a little bit of it in the segment of Blue Velvet, and it was it was great. He's got a very thick accent, but uh, he's definitely very interesting. You yeah. should you can also play a drinking game with how many times he touches his nose. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, it's time to give it a rating on a five star scale. DJ, what would you give Blue Velvet? I'm gonna go with four point five, mm-hmm. and that's just because, like I had mentioned earlier, I want to know more about Dorothy's husband and son. What happened? The backstory there. Um, other than that, I think this is a really well done film. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's it. John, five star scale. Yeah. Uh, I'm also going with, with four and a half. Uh, yeah, I, I do feel like that there were a couple of other things we could have been let in on like the, the kidnapping and what was going on with that. And just some small things here or there, like I mentioned in my could change, but overall a, a fantastic film. Well, I'm going to go a little higher. Um, Mary and I first watched this and I didn't get many of the things that were going on. And I probably came out of there saying four stars. This was, this was interesting, weird at times, but interesting. And, um, you know, I give it five stars, uh, because the more I started to read and learn and find out some of these things about, like, this is my introduction to Lynch. And so I'm, I'm a little bit hooked and I can't wait to see more now and so uh i don't know where this ranks and for you all like what's your favorite david lynch movie oh i'm gonna it's a tie between this one and mulholland for me okay john probably mulholland drive okay well i mean i just so for mary and i we just loved the mystery we liked a lot of the themes that were going on there's a lot of stuff going on in here and it's really really interesting and he doesn't hit you across the face with it he definitely challenges you to go deeper but as as i enjoyed going into it with you guys here this has been one of the most fun movies to pick apart well and that, that's one of the wonderful things of what why we're doing this podcast actually is i i look forward to kind of maybe thinking my rating over again after a few more watches yeah and like i said if i had just watched it once i would have come in here and told you four and been like, and what was that thing about the candle going out? Well, and then you learn about it. It's like, well, that that that's that's the darkness taking over. I mean, it's when bad things happen that Frank blows out that candle on the wall after after the rape. I mean, and he he calls attention to saying now it's dark. There's just so many things in this movie that um, it, it's really it's really impressive to me. Good, great filmmaking. So I, I did go five here. Um, it like I said, it's not for the easy. It's not easy watching. At, at times but it sure is interesting so. not for the faint of heart no no i would caution people before they hop into it a- absolutely um so uh this was a lot of fun but john it's time to help uh what, what are we gonna do for next time so next time we are going into the fantasy realm so first we have the never-ending story from 1984 a troubled boy dives into a wondrous fantasy world through the pages of a mysterious book. We have The Princess Bride from 1987. While homesick in bed, a young boy's grandfather reads him a story called The Princess Bride. And finally, from 1988, we have the movie Willow. A reluctant dwarf must play a critical role in protecting a special baby from an evil queen. Mm. Well, you know, I've seen A Princess Bride so many times. It's a classic, and it begs to be redone, or begs to be done in this uh, podcast, but I'm going to hold it to another time because uh, I've never seen Willow, 
and I have seen the Never Ending Story, but not since I was a kid, and I remember really loving it. Um, man, this is tough. I really want to do all of these, to be honest with you. Um, They're all go, great picks. They are. I'm. I really want to go back and see the Never Ending Story. Let's let's go back and do the Never Ending Story. What do you say? Let's let's go back and. Do do a podcast that hopefully ends at one point. This is the story that never ends. Yes, it goes on uh-huh. and on, my friends. And now that'll be stuck in my head all night. So people stop. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, DJ, thank you so much for coming. This yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank was, you all. This was great. Yeah, you guys, you, were, you brought a lot great of good points. So, um, and to all of our lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, thank you so much for joining us and listening with us. Please like us on Facebook, reach out to us, and give us an email at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. And we really, really appreciate the ratings, reviews, and subscriptions you give us through iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get to your podcast. That helps us find a new audience and grow the show and build this giant movie-loving community that we're trying to build here. So thank you so much, everybody. Uh, as always, be good to each other and watch more movies. John? Gotta go with another Hopper quote on this one. The man is clear in his mind, but his soul is mad. <laughs>